I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi everyone, this is Charlene. Hi, this is Betty Seaton from Music to You. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, and now welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, it's the 80s Rewind Show with me, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. How are you doing? I hope you're doing really well. I really, really do. I've got to say a massive thank you, a massive thank you to everybody around the world that's listening to the show. I've had a fantastic response from some places I've never even heard of, to be honest with you. Some of them are literally so remote. I'm just absolutely chuffed that the show is getting around the world. Uh, In that vein, if you can, if you can go to Apple Podcasts and give me some stars and write me a review, that would be absolutely fantastic because I want to spread the show far and wide uh, and I need the reviews and the stars to do that. So if you can, that would be absolutely amazing and I'll owe you one. Thanks for that. Anyway, today's show, I've got an absolutely fantastic guest for you. Now, why I love the 80s is because the 80s is so quirky. You've got like glam rock bands from America, you had indie from England, you had electro, you had punk, you had reggae, and you had one-it wonders, and you had all crazy kinds of music. Now, these crazy music were made by crazy kind of people, and today's guest is no exception. The wonderful Clive Jackson, or the doctor from Doctor and the Medics. He's absolutely amazing to chat to. Uh, he said about, I said to him, did you, did you think you should write a book? And he said, no, I think he's wrong. I think it would be absolutely amazing. We had a fantastic chat. He's so quirky and eccentric. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, we spoke about him being a DJ in the early days, forming Doctor and the Medics, uh, the albums that they made, and also the Spirit in the Sky single and what he's up to nowadays, including his radio show. I'm sure you'll agree, listen to this, they just don't make him like Clive anymore. Anyway, let's do this. You grew up in Liverpool, is that right? Yeah, born, born and bred, born and bred in Liverpool, and uh, until about the age of five, and I was uh, dragged to London. For my dad came down there for work, went down there for work, but I've been living in Brecon for over half my life now for thirty, thirty-five years, thirty-six years now. Thirty-six years I've been in Brecon in the Brecon Beacons. Yeah. Wow. And was there a lot of music in the house growing up? Were your parents into music? Were they very musical people? No, my dad had a piano, which he reluctantly played every now and then. Um, uh, but no, there was no actual music. My mum and dad had one of those, um, you know, the old record players with the lid and the needle and you could put up to seven sort of records on there. We didn't really have any records. And the first thing I bought was, um, I think, a country and western album. I don't know why. I don't know why. But it kind of actually came in useful because it had Mule Skinner Blues on it. Which I suddenly realised. Oh, now this is this is this is it. Um, and of course, you know, I traced that through to the Cramps, and later, you know, got me into the legendary Stardust Cowboy and all that side of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it did serve a purpose. But no, very little music. Um, it was really kind of punk. That, no, we started getting into Hawkwind and everything like that. A few of us, and uh, and it was really punk that kind of got me really, really buying records. So. And you were, were you living in London at this point? So were you going to a lot of the clubs, like the 100 and stuff like that? I tour at the moment with a show called The Doctor Will See You Now. Uh, Life as a one-hit wonder, question mark. Um, <laughs> it's me and our guitarist, Chris, and we basically just play our songs. And so I kind of tell the whole story about um, where we go. So I had to reflect. Uh, oh, by the way, we play 8th of December. We're at the Fez 
Upton Tree in London on the King's Road. Anyone wants to come see us, more than welcome. Um, we, um, so I kind of had to reflect and put it all down in words. And I, I remember the sort of the, the baptism of fire for me was the X-ray specs at the marquee. And uh, a light bulb went on in my head. And, you know, I saw polystyrene flailing around like a mad thing, you know, unrestrained. There was no compromise. She was, you know, her. And I thought, blimey, you know, she was possibly, you could say, the most, at the time, the most unlikely sort of rock star performer or anything. Um, and yet she created herself and she created a sound. And, and she had a, a, her voice was just, you know, as a friend put it, she used to scream herself a new set of vocal cords every gig. <laughs> such was the level of commitment. And that was like the real light bulb moment for me, I think, was, the, yeah, seeing her live. And thought, oh, hang on, there's something, there's something happening here. <laughs> uh, for people that don't know the band, Identity is probably their biggest track, would you say? Would that be the one to go to? Germ-free Adolescence. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Identity. But of course... Um, at the time, the one we all liked was Oh Bondage Up Yours, which was um, <laughs> their first, which I've still got the original 12-inch here. Um, but yeah, people should definitely check, check if they don't, if they don't, the day the world turned day glow, don't forget, loads, yeah, more than you can imagine. Yeah, check check them out, definitely. That's fantastic. So were you involved in music in any way at this point? Were you, or were you, were you just a punter going to gigs? Was you in a band? No, I was, just, you... I was just a punter going to gigs, you know, and collecting lots and lots and lots of records. Wow. So, you know, I used to, at the time I, had a, I was working for the civil service as an executive officer in the registry of the societies. Um, and I was getting quite a decent wage because I was the last non-degree after me. You had to have a degree uh, to get in as an executive officer. So I was getting, you know, quite good money. I managed to spend it all as well, going to gigs <laughs> and buying records. But I used to spend my uh, lunch times just prowling, prowling around London, finding records. And, the thing for me, I got into punk uh, and then, funny enough, it was oh, cruising on Capital Radio. Was it Dave Cash? I think it was Dave Cash. Anyway, he used to play old 50s stuff and he won one time, this one-off program. And I, it, it kind of drew me right in because it was different times. So we now got the internet. You can find out about a band in 20 minutes. You can see them live. You can read their bio. You can hear all their music. You can become an instant fan. Just add the internet, you know, and poof, that's it. Yeah. Um, but in our day, and listen, people say, what's the difference between now and then? And I said, well, look, it's just different. It's a different process. It's not better or worse. I like the immediacy, you know, because yeah. I've got less years to go now. There's more <laughs> miles on the clock. So I like, I don't want to spend six months before I can find the first album in the country by this band. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore, but there was a romance to it. So Dave Cash did this program and it was based on the, the American punk scene of the American garage bands. Everyone from the Seeds to the Electric Prunes to 13th for Elevators and the album Nuggets. So I tracked a copy of Nuggets and I thought this is absolute, you know, I love this. And I I once got sort of into a fight at the marquee by trying to explain to someone because I was wearing beads, you know, I kind of had this hippie <laughs> punk fusion going on. And someone called me a hippie. And I said, well, actually, no, you know, da, da, da. and they, of course, you know, the, people were as binary then as they are now. <laughs> oh, it's rubbish. No, it's not. You know, and I, my, my expression is if you can't open your mind, don't open your mouth. <laughs> um, you know, music is there to be appreciated. And if you don't like it, somebody else does. So move on. So I kind of was 
discovering punk bands along with, and of course the American garage psych scene opened up everything to the doors, Jefferson Airplane, the more mainstream, uh, and everything else. So I had this bizarre record collection. And when I first got into music was I got a call from Christian Paris to say he was running this nightclub. And would I be a DJ? I thought it was because of my charisma, wit and charm. It was just because I was the only person they knew with enough records to play for the entire <laughs> evening. Uh, and it was called, it was part of the neo-psychedelic revival of London, right? Which, which was a thing and it did get quite, we were night, uh, nightclub of the year in City oh, Limits wow. in 1987. Oh yeah, it, was, it got, you know, I mean, our club, we had the Damned play there, the Cult. Uh, Zodiac Mind Warp did their first gig there. Wow. We had, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was, quite a thing quite a kind of a sub sub subculture um but it um it got me djing and uh we used to play we call it psychedelic but we play something punk glam psychedelia me and the other dj would often take a deck each and just bounce off each other so you get the 13th floor elevators and then johnny cash and then <laughs> captain beefheart um and so it was this really weird mishmash which kind of formed my um my taste in music is just to think I, I look for I don't care what the genre is I might like one track by a band but the point is you wouldn't find that track if you said oh I hate them don't like them <laughs> um, so you know but yeah, and then you you might just find that's one track you think that's brilliant and that's the way it should work so uh, it was a mate then who said to me um, well you know you just DJ you couldn't really do it for like for real could you uh, you just play other people's records so that was the five pound bet Wow. Uh, that I, I could support them. They were playing here. The Marble Staircase, not many, of course, there we are. That's what happened to them. Uh, and um, he bet me £5. I couldn't support them, and we did. And we did very well. And then someone asked us to do another gig, which we couldn't <laughs> believe. Because uh, we were very much uh, inspired by the trash. You know, we, we we were playing stuff by the cramps, and uh, we were playing like, these boots are made for walking, and the theme music to run white horses. <laughs> Um, and we just thought nobody's going to book us again. And me and Steve McGuire, who kind of formed the band, said, well, let's just keep going until people stop asking us to play. And it was our 40th anniversary this year. People (laughs) are still asking us to play, so we're playing. And they're asking us more than ever now. (laughs) That's brilliant. So when when the bet got made, were you like, oh, what do I do? Did you you know your mates were musical? Was it one of those sort of things where you thought, ah, I've got got this, it's fine. My mate plays guitar. Well, well, Steve McGuire and I had already... um, kind of dabbled at doing something completely off the wall called the Axemen, uh, which was just a, this surreal nonsense. It was kind of more, I suppose, comedy in inverted commas. Um, uh, I, I, I can only remember one song we wrote, which is called I've Been Feeding the Ducks and the Ducks Have Been Feeding Me. Uh, so you can kind of guess where we were coming from with that sort of stuff so i said to Steve, right we've got to form a band so we got together with uh a, a blo- bloke i knew in the scouts uh and the bloke who used to cut my hair who, who claimed to be a drummer um and yeah and we just had a rehearsal and put together six or seven songs including including uh, we, we actually wrote our first single for the gig at the druids are here Excellent. Uh, which, so we, which we did at the gig. So, um, and, uh, you know, people scoff at that, but it reached number four in the German mod charts. It did. And it's very like punky track as well, isn't it? So it fit in what you were playing and it was, it yeah, was kind yeah, of yeah, ethos, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite punky. It's quite, 
Yeah, you know, we do it. We actually open the show I'm doing at the moment with Chris, the Doctor will see you now. We actually open the show with the Druids are here. And then we play Terrified, which was our last but one single. And we say, this is a story about everything that's happened in between. So, Are you doing the um, the Goats are Trying to Kill Me as well, the B-side, which I think is no, fantastic. No, we used to play that live. But if you listen to I mean, it, God, it's so long. And it just keeps going round and round and round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, we, 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 no, I don't think that one. Well, that's a hard one to sell live. It, yeah, it was written as a B side. I mean, I've got to be honest, Clive. I think if you flip the record over, that's my favorite side. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. Really? I think, I think it's wow. great. There yeah. we are. I think you must be the only person there that's, that, that, yeah, but well done. Thank you. You've given me, um, you've given me, yeah, yes. That's lovely to hear. Bizarre, but lovely. <laughs> You know the I Will Survive story where they turned it over and they played the beat and then all of a sudden there was the hit. I think that's what, that's what should have happened. They should have swapped it over and had that. That should have been. Well, well funnily enough, when we put out later on, we put out Black and Blue, we, we, right, we didn't have a record deal and someone offered us money to do a version of Hi-Ho Silver Lining, which we did. And then Steve and I wrote this B-side called Black and Blue and everyone said, that's brilliant. So um, another record company put that out as a single and it did all right, actually. And people, yeah, I mean, I know they, they used to be a dance floor filler at the Camden Palace. It, yeah, that's it. Just, it was, uh, yeah, so that kind of happened to us. So Yeah, yeah I, I mean, sometimes it's just, if you hear something, you just feel like that's the one. Like I used to DJ in a nightclub for years, like yourself. And uh, I mean, when Gangman Style came out, about three months before that blew up, I was like, That'll be massive. And my mate was like, no, it yeah. won't. You know, like you just know, you hear it, you go, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And it's the same thing yeah. with the, um, the ghost trying to kill me. <laughs> I think oh, that's, right. that's the one. <laughs> it wasn't massive, but there we are. <laughs> I'll make it massive. I'll get there. <laughs> so where did the name come from and the, the doctor part? Where did that all come together as well? Did you have a different name when you did your first gig or was it Doctor and the No, no, time? no. I was, de- no, well, we, 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 right. I was DJing under the name of the doctor. Right. And that was it. So I just picked the name of the doctor. Well, um, there's a story behind that, but you'd have to go and see the show. Oh, uh, yeah. it's so long. It's very long. Yeah. But I was DJing as the doctor and, um, uh, Steve and I sat down and we'd done a couple of rehearsals. We said, well, we need, need a name. And I said, well, it's not like we're ever going to do anything. So let's just call it Doctor and the Medics. And literally. And that was it. The first name we thought of. Had we given it any more thought, we'd have come up with something really good, like Duran Duran or something. <laughs> and the makeup was the makeup an idea right from the start? Uh, yes, it was. Um, pretty early on, uh, because, uh, um, I've rather, um, I suppose I was taking a few liberties, but I rather patted myself on the black and, uh, and kind of like the lineage of Screaming Lord Such, kind of Dave Vanian and Arthur Brown, that side of, you know, and Roy Wood, of course, you know, I, I, I thought that men on top of the pots should always wear makeup. <laughs> um, I was disappointed when they didn't. You can imagine how drab I found the nineties. Uh, and also, I didn't own a Kagul, so I was out. Um, but um, I did own a Kagul, but not like the ones they wore. Uh, so, yeah, so no, I, I kind of, and and to, and to be honest, for, for the radio show I do on, on 365 Radio, I recently interviewed Arthur Brown. Wow. And, yeah, and we had a chat about makeup and, uh, you know, why, and, yeah, and it was um, very much, and, of course, um, from the other side of the pond, screaming Jay Hawkins as well, you know, that, side, that kind of theatrical side of it all, yeah. 
Hasn't he got like 87 children or something? Is it is it him that's got like loads of children? <laughs> there are so many myths about screaming Jay Hawkins and <laughs> I, I doubt very few of them are true. But, so <laughs> even the ones you know are true. It's, his life story is quite bizarre. And um, Screaming Lord Such is another person they need to make a film about. I think he's such a wonderful character. He absolutely is. He absolutely is. And uh, did quite a few gigs with him and a lovely, lovely, humble man. Um but um, yeah, he was, and he, people kind of know Jack the Ripper, which kind of, due to I suppose political correctness, people don't too scared to play now. Well, I I played on my show. It's <laughs> a historic document, isn't it? Uh, but he did some other some other great tracks, all black and hairy, and uh, <laughs> you know stuff like that. Uh, you know, and I I still say that with him, you know, you can definitely, you know, uh, well, well, the Dan toured with him. In fact, he used to carry it on stage in a coffin. And one day he was touring with the Dan Roll the other way around and he asked Rat and Captain if they could be him on in his coffin. So they said, yeah. And as they picked it up, got all the road crew and everyone to turn it upside down and carry it and put it on the stage upside down. <laughs> so he's trying to get out. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> on the sta- yes, I know. But uh, yeah, no, he was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's, 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 he's an unsung hero of British subculture, I think. He's fantastic. I live on the Kent coast and only five miles away. If you go to the beach, I can see the, where we had the radio station. Uh, on, out Brilliant. On, yeah, the Seven Sisters, they call it. Yeah, you can see those. Yeah. And every time I see it, I think, he was out there once, all on his own, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Broadcasting to, well, who cares? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. He, he's amazing. Were you gigging much after your two or three gigs? Did you sort of just keep on the roll with the gigs? And you made an EP, is it Happy But Twisted? Was that an easy thing to well, make? Well, no, 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 no. We, 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 um, we, we then got kind of um, the club and Alice in Wonderland, which was the club, and the band kind of started to grow hand in hand. Right. So we'd play there quite a bit. Um, and then we would play, uh, we just started doing gigs around London due to that. Um, the ad lib in Kensington, I can read, yeah, which is gone now. <laughs> uh, the, the, um, Clarendon Hotel at, uh, Hammersmith, the basement there, Club Foot, uh, another great place where, where loads of people played. Um, and we, we started, you know, it was bizarre. We, we kind of got a psychobilly following for quite a while as well. And, oh, yeah. um, because of our, backing singers who are called the Andean brothers but very much female of course we, <laughs> we also that. got we also got quite uh you know i mean in in our day you know they, they were just uh cross-dressers transvestite but now members of the lgbtq community which uh would, would come along and because they kind of saw that we were quite um quite i suppose we, we were we were a very fluid band yeah we were a little ahead of our time so you had this bizarre scene where you'd have all the, you know, the, all these different crowds. You'd have custard bits in a mosh pit down <laughs> below and, and um, you know, and everybody else. It was quite a bizarre. And also, of course, we had the psychedelic following. Uh, we had a bit of a rock following, a bit of a punk following. So you get all this emergence of all these different tribes and all totally accepting of each other. And I felt quite proud of that at the time, actually. I, I was very proud of it. I thought, wow, this is what I, I wanted to do. Um, and we just slowly started building and building. We put out, we did put out one uh, white label. We bootlegged ourselves, the Alice, live at Alice in Wonderland EP, um, which we stuck out and we, yeah, we just made a thousand copies and sold them. So we printed another thousand and sold them. Um, and then we we got signed up with a management label and then IRS Records and more by all the big labels said, no, 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 not going to touch you. Fair enough. You know, they, they, that lot of them had a point. But by that time, we were kind of headlining to three, four hundred people in London and around the country. So I think 
more by for, a force of nature, more by the fact that someone had to sign us. <laughs> I think all the record companies are, well, yeah, I'm not, we're not going to sign them. No, we're not. Oh, come on. Someone's got to sign them. So I think poor old IRS records put their hands on and said, all right, we'll do it. Um, and the rest of the say is history. Yeah. And then the first thing we did with them was the Happy But Twisted EP, which went to number one in the um, old fashioned uh, indie charts. Fantastic. I love Molecatcher. That's a great track on there. <laughs> We still play that to this day long. Oh, fantastic. In fact, the story behind that, I'll jump ahead a bit. Sure. Um, is that at the end of the 90s, we were dead in the water. Uh, you know, we couldn't buy a gig. I think in 98, we did nine gigs. Um, and then this chap came and offered me a tour of Brannigan's, you know, the pub, Brannigan's pubs. Yeah. Um, and I, he said, oh, but you got to do covers. And I said, all right, I'm just, I'm just going to go out and do, do these dates and call it a day. Uh, so I spoke to Steve, he didn't want to do it. None of the original members of the band wanted to do it. Uh, so I kind of got this different lineup together, one of whom is still with me. Another one wasn't shortly after, uh, you know, and, uh, John and uh, Aid, our bass player and drummer um, from that time. And I kind of picked up these, you know, this great band's kind of merged and it's till we're, we're playing today is great. But I suppose 2010, uh, around then, they, we were still playing some covers, I suppose, a little bit earlier and um we played the bearded theory festival and we kind of did them all our way and you know we, they, they were our covers like we've always done covers mm. but i think someone in the audience said just sing doctor and the medics they've turned into a wedding reception band and i thought <laughs> oh okay uh, and then the band said you've got to start playing your own stuff but my confidence had gone so i said right we're gonna do one song one of mine and then if it goes down like a lead balloon, we're not going to do any because people don't want to hear it. Yeah. Honestly, I was honestly that, to that point. So we did Mole Catcher and people loved it. And I thought, <laughs> oh, well, okay. And so from there on, we went. So now if we're doing it like a festival, I mean, if we're doing an 80s party gig or whatever, you know, we, we, we play what people want, not what we want to play. Yeah. Which, um, you know, which if you, if you were Prince or you're someone up there, you know, you can do what you want, can't you? Because people still come. But uh, what, what we do, I like to play what people want to hear. But now when we do a festival set, there might be three covers in there, including Spirit, and the rest is all our stuff, which is which only happened because of my old catcher and because my band kind of got behind me and said, pull your finger out, people want to hear it. I didn't believe them, but they were right. I was wrong. <laughs> it's a fantastic song, that's why. So were you were you writing a lot for the EP? And around that time, were you writing lyrics a lot? Were you just, what sort of writer were you as a songwriter? Did they fall in your head or did you get inspired by what no, you No, we were writing all, all the time. We were rehearsing and writing all the time. Um... And, um, you know, I, I, it would kind of, I think we'd hear a tune. It was quite chaotic in those days. Uh, we'd hear a tune um, or, or they would just be jamming and we'd say, oh, let's go with that. Or I'd have a vague idea and we'd sit down. Or Normally normally it was Stephen, myself, who came up with an idea. Um, and we'd just kind of plod through it. Um, and I used to kind of, while we were plodding through, just make notes of the lyrics and then go away and, it all used to, yeah, just wait for the flow of stream of consciousness. In fact, the interesting thing about that is we're doing an album at the moment um, called The Optimal Mystic, and we're very close to it. But when I started the process, I thought, right, what am I going to write about? Because I hadn't written a song for ages. And I thought, well, I don't want to be one of these older guys who's saying, oh, isn't the world rubbish now? You know, I'm, you know, so I thought, no, no, it's got to be up. And then I kind of thought, well, what did I do? Uh, and so I thought, well, I used to sort of look at it and I kind of thought, well, okay, 
kind of understood what I did again. So I invented this story in my head and uh, I kind of thought, well, it's not a rock opera, but that's the theme. The story is in my head and these stories are all about these various characters, but I'm going to apply it. So if you listen to each song as a one-off, you don't kind of think, oh, that's part of a story. But it really helped because I could delve. I mean, of course, it always helped when you decide the story is going to be Satan coming back as a transgender uh, temptress uh, onto the planet. Uh, you know that always helps when you got when you got subject matter like that. I think it helps to open the doors of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so when the EP come out, did it get like launched by the record company? Were they just seeing how you got on before they got you in to do an album? Was it a water tester kind of thing, or was it they just wanted something to put out? Um, I think they wanted something quick. Yeah. So IRS had two. They had illegal records and IRS. Uh, illegal with their kind of independent branch because IRS had just signed with MCA, I think. So uh, we put it out in illegal and it was just sort of a quick one. It went out, got to number one, and they said, right, I suppose you're right. Yeah, we've. But before that, we did Miracle of the Age with Andy Partridge. Right. Andy um, which was kind of just as a one off single, which the record company managed to destroy because. And, I mean, Andy Partridge was working with him. I just thought, wow, this, you know, genius. Yeah. And we spent like four hours getting this snare drum. I mean, now you just press a button, say that's the <laughs> snare drum I want. So we had the snare down the corridor or and Vom hitting it as hard as he could until his arm was, you know, falling off. And Andy Partridge built the whole song around this snare because he said, that's it. And if wow. you hear the record, it has the snare, but it's not the way Andy Partridge wanted it because... um now, or a couple of years later, or a year later even, records had that driving snare. But they, an R&R man, being of little wit, um, listened to it and went, oh, you can't have a snare like that. But he said, it's okay. I went in at the, stu- in the studio at the weekend and I solved it. I said, what? I solved it. He said, I EQ'd the snare down. I said, well, what, just the snare without any multi, you know, just from the track. Now, as anyone who knows anything about music, you can't just EQ a snare well you couldn't in those days these days you actually but you couldn't so in case he just took the top edge off the whole record (laughs) and i know andy partridge was heartbroken i know and i can't blame him you know you you create something like that and you get some halfway a and r man destroy your work unbelievable but um there we are but no but it's one of my favorite records and it's nice because we do play it again in the doctor will see you now show again and it's uh yeah it's nice to be able to doff my cap and give a credit to Andy Partridge because he did do a brilliant job and I'm still trying to trace uh, an original, if there's anywhere, if there's a master of it, I'm, you know, I'd love to get one and re- re-release the original version. So did Andy have no control over the end product? Was it the A&R said, that's what we're doing and that's it? He had no no, uh, no control? No, 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 that was, you know, that in those and in those days, A&R men thought they ruled the world, didn't they? You know, that was it. And unless you were of a certain size, you had it written in your contract, you had artistic control, which very few bands did. You kind of had to do what they said, you know, which was which was, which was was difficult, but you had to work your way around it. But unfortunately, on that occasion, it was a negative result. That's crazy. That's even crazy yeah. to think about. For for people that's not sure what we're talking about, because it, it can be quite, you know, it, it'd be like um, someone going into Beyonce and just turning down the vocals. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, some, yeah. someone from the bus stop walking in and turning down the vocals and going, "I, I think that sounds better," rather than yeah. Beyonce saying that. And they, and they and they have control over it. But of course, I mean, I remember uh, Peter Gabriel. We, we recorded it in Clock Studios, which is Peter Gabriel's studio. So nice. I was talking to people there about him, and you know, 
he was one of the first artists I heard of at the time that actually had control over everything. The weight of vinyl of the records had to be on virgin vinyl. As a, I mean, 99% of vinyl you buy now is recycled. Uh, had to be on virgin vinyl, had to be 180 gram, it had to be this. He had total control over everything. And of course, you know, he's a big enough star to do that. But in our league, you know, that's the Premier League. We were in the Dr. Martin's handbag league. <laughs> And we did what, yeah, we had to do. Otherwise, it wouldn't get released. Yeah, and you covered Silver Machine on that EP as well. Is that right? We did cover Silver Machine, yes. Uh, um, what, what else was on there? We did Silver Machine, uh, Round and Round, and Auntie... Oh, no, I can't remember what other tracks were on it. <laughs> I can't remember. I'll have to look it up. Hang on, I can, <laughs> I can, I can tell you in a second. Uh, you had Happy oh. But Twisted, Round and Round, um, Auntie Evil Dormitory. Auntie Evil's Dormitory, that was it. And, and, and Molecatcher and Silver Machine. Machine. Yeah. Oh, there we are. I'd forgotten about some of those tracks. Of course, Happy But Twisted, yes. It was called the Happy But Twisted AP. <laughs> the clue is there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after that, that came out, they got you in to do the album, uh, Laughing at the Pieces. Is that right? Did they get you in straight away after the EP to get you on a roll? Yeah, it was. And uh, yeah, we did that. And it was during the process of doing that album that... Um, we recorded Spirit in the Sky. Was you covering that already or did you just, did, did it just come on the radio? No. Ah, oh, that one. No, no. And there's um, a very bizarre story about why we recorded it. Um, and I, 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 without giving too much away, I, I tell the story, well, no, I tell one of the stories in my show and I tell people, I'm not going to tell you if that's the truth or reality, <laughs> but the reality is more bizarre. There's two stories. One's a lie and one's the truth. I'll, I'll tell you. Right, oh, one's bless. a lie and one's the truth. But the actual truth is more bizarre than the lie. So this is the version I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you if it's the truth or a lie. You have to work out. So we're recording the album. We did need a single off it. And um, I went to bed one night and I dreamt I was at Lavenham in Suffolk, specifically Lavenham. And I met John and Yoko, uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And uh, as you do, we went for a pint. So we went in a pub and we just heard this musician in the corner and it was Mark Boland sat cross-legged <laughs> singing Spirit in the Sky. And John Lennon said, you should record that bass, you know. Um, and so I went in and I told everyone this bizarre dream and everyone was, the band was taking the mic, but Craig Leon, the producer, overheard it. I said, hey, that would be great. You should definitely do that. So if you listen to the record very carefully, well, we got the Tony Visconti. The whole, there's a bit of a tribute to T-Rex there with the guitar riff, but also the big strings in the middle. Yeah, Tony Visconti, Mark Boldman's producer. But if you listen, because uh, in the 80s, you had to double track, quadruple track your vocals to get that kind of homogenous sound that everyone wanted at the time. So on some of the uh, doubles and treble tracks, instead of singing When They Lay Me Down to Rest, I'm singing When They Lay Me Down T-Rex. <laughs> Uh, and if you listen very carefully, you can hear it, which kind of proves the story. So there you go. You decide <laughs> if that's true. I'm not going to tell you. Oh, they have to come to see your tour. Do you explain on the tour <laughs> if, if it's true or not? <laughs> I might do. You might Depends do. what night of the week and depends where we are. <laughs> that's fantastic. And um, can we talk about the video for a second? Was it a high budget video? Did they sort of just let you go crazy? We spent £5,000 on it. And at the time, people were spending, uh, I, th I think, you know, a cheap video would have been about, 30,000 people were spending 100, 200 grand, I think, uh, on, on a video. We spent 5,000 pounds on it in a church hall, and we had loads of people with white and black paint, uh, painting everything. Um, and in fact, on one take, 
there's a swirling disc moving behind me, which, of course, now you just do on a computer in 10 seconds. There's a guy with a black and decker drill and a cardboard circle, and it's going, and he's walking behind. And as he's doing it, because we're filming it onto film and video or what, you know, so as he's doing it, it f- flies off. So he's just stood there with a the black and decker drill behind me, and he ducks thinking that if he gets out of the way quickly, we can still use the footage. That's how cheap it was. He knew that we were scared of wasting that footage. And I think they should have put that bit in, but they didn't. Yeah, it would have been amazing. Yeah. I love it. It's a really cool... Well, I was talking to um, Nick Vanid from uh, Cutting Crew the other day about the Died in Your Arms video. And I said, and your video is the same, where it's really engaging, but there's not a lot in it. And I don't mean to be rude. I mean, there's not like a special effects and there's not you know no. explosions it's just really simple but it really works and you know with yourself and the girls in it, it it's really engaging in the the swirly circle that you're right they should live well, well the special effects were a box <laughs> an action, <laughs> like where i'm looking in a box it was just a box you know and a hole in a bit of card and everything was just made it was just so low tech it was brilliant yes yeah. i think um modern bands should do that now they say here's 500 quid <laughs> even less than you had to go make a video with that that's that's what you got. Well, yeah but the thing is now you can do i mean our last video um which which, which uh, someone t- cost us 150 quid for forever and ever which just got to number one in the legacy chart by the way fantastic um and uh, yeah yeah it cost us 150 quid so uh, you can do it now because you've got all the technology yeah oh, that's you true. Can, it make yeah 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 it's it's now easier but in those days you had to have cameras that were bigger than your suitcase when you went to work you know everything had to be you know and, you know there still is that that process is still available for people with more money than sense so. and <laughs> um, was it a good album to record uh laugh laugh at the pieces was it easy to do was it did it was it a quick album to record right it, it wasn't our best album uh, you know i mean i think our best album today i mean this one that's coming out obviously because it's us uh us now and it's sounding i think it surprised a lot of people um, is the one I'm really excited about. I think Instant Heaven was our best album. Mm. Um, but it was, it was kind of us, right? There was two schools of it. There was us trying to sound like we were live because that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and then it was kind of mixed. We were so disappointed when we heard the mix because it was kind of so clean and so, you know, it just wasn't us live. And I think they tried to take us trying to sound like we're live. But mix it for radio play, yeah. Um, which wasn't our intent. So we had the band pulling one way, so we want to make a really raucous punk sounding album, and the record company thinking everything should be for radio play. Yeah, but it was never, you know, we that wasn't our brief at the time. And when it was decided that Spirit was going to be the single, obviously we went in and did a totally different production on that. And we, and we actually were quite adamant at the time. We said, we're not going to play it live. We're not mm. going to play it live. <laughs> no, we're not going to play that live. <laughs> um, because um, it just didn't sound like us live. So what we did in the end was we took Spirit as a song and we developed the way we play it live, which is very much how we do it now, which is just as an all-out rocker, um, you know, because it's kind of, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, a bit different to the record because I thought there's no point trying to recreate that. We don't have keyboards. Every time we've had keyboards on stage, apart from a couple of one-off things where we had Mickey Gallagher from um, the Blockheads on with us a couple of times, but every time we've tried to have keyboards or anything, clever in the band like that it's failed miserably yeah I think sometimes <laughs> yeah. you can be too rock <laughs> can't you yeah, yeah 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 so there we are so uh, yeah so 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 that, so the first album kind of didn't come out at the time I mean I'm more happy with it now than I was then 
Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I love um, Kettle on a Long Chain. That's a really good track. Yeah, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah really yeah. good. Uh, for people that have not heard the album, it's on Spotify. You can find it. Um, and just listen to it. It's really eclectic and wonderful and psychedelic and weird. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's a really yeah. lovely mix of like lots of, it's like someone poured punk and then psychedelia and then just stirred it. And went, there you go. It's fantastic. Well, I'm glad you said that because um, I wanted it to be a bit more like that. Oh, uh, right. I wanted it to be, be a bit more kind of off the wall and a bit and odd. And I think the rest of the band did. So we were quite disappointed when it came out sounding as kind of attempting to be radio play as it was but uh, no I appreciate you saying that because yeah, yeah that I mean that was musically as we said we took the worst elements of glam punk psych uh, and put them all together and mixed it all up and, and also that's kind of what inspired the way we looked as well so yeah oh thank you yeah, you said that's made my morning oh thank you mate. I'm, I'm pleased <laughs> so um, Spirit Explodes and all of a sudden you're like really popular was that an easy ascend to make was it a bit frightening was you okay with it or was it just like what's going on I was DJing 10 minutes ago <laughs> and then uh, you know um, well, I still carried on DJing. Oh, you did? Uh, for, cool. Yeah. And, yeah, it got a bit, uh, yeah, I had to sort of take quite a bit of time out, obviously. But, well, we didn't really have time to think about it because, um, well, we enjoyed it, put it this way. Uh, we just had a laugh with it. We we tried not to take ourselves too seriously. I don't think we ever did. But we just had a laugh with it because I think when you're sort of young and you see like the monkeys on telly and stuff, you think, oh, I'd like to be in a band and do that. Well, we did that. You know, we did do that. In fact, it got to the point where they said, we want you, we, you need a follow-up single. We went, oh, what? <laughs> and we wrote it on the road. We wrote it literally on the on the road. And in, uh, um, in fact, a quick story about that, we started playing that live, Burn, because again, we didn't, uh, it was what went out on the record was hard to play live. And we wrote it as a rock song. Right, and we were we we had to post right. We played it live, and I discovered the bootleg of the actual first time we ever played it live because we were meant to record it in a sound check, but someone didn't press record. <laughs> so we did this song, and I'm not seeing even singing the lyrics because we hadn't I hadn't written the lyrics. So I'm just going hello, okay, uh, just mumbling over it so we could get it. So we recorded it live sent us the record company we turned up and there was this homogenized version and i said there's no strings on this record it's a rock song and they said well again our wonderful a and r man <laughs> uh, has said that spirit had strings so this had to have strings so we said well that you know you, mm. so anyway we did we did burn which got to number 23 i think so we're the only uh one hit wonder to have had two hits <laughs> which i'm quite proud of um, but we didn't, we didn't like playing it. We didn't play it for years. But then during lockdown, I discovered someone sent me a bootleg of that gig and I heard the song as we wrote it and I sent it out to the band Fantastic! and uh, they all learned it. And uh, yeah, and we play it live now and it rocks. It's great. It's as it should have been. In fact, they're, they're saying we should re-record, you know, we should re-record it, uh, which we probably will. Yeah. Yeah. Do it, do it. And after that, was it like there was another EP again? Ooh, ah, uh, yes, there was. Because uh, two pieces of cloth carefully stitched together. Mm. Because we said before we make the next album, we want to kind of produce it. Right. And so they said, oh, oh, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, we've mucked your last two records up. Let's muck this one up. Uh, so we said, so they put us in Madness's studio, uh, right. 16 tracks. But we'd started by that point to have an early version of Cubase. So Stephen and I kind of programmed stuff and we played live with it. And it, and, and I really like that EP. Yeah, and that EP is kind of even more of what you said, psych and punk all together and sounding um, very raucous yeah. uh, on occasions. But also uh, there's a couple of tracks on there. You can definitely hear 
uh, our Hawkwind, uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, wearing that, wearing that on our sleeves, uh, yeah, with, with pride. Um, so yeah, no, we enjoyed making that. And then we went in and they said, well, okay, but it's always a but, isn't it? Yeah. You've got to have this engineer. So we went in and, uh, yeah, it was, it's an, it's a very interesting album because mm. everyone was going digital and we thought, no, no, we're going to go the other way. <laughs> so we had, we just, we just had musicians turning up, like trombone players. And what are you here for? I don't know. Someone just told me to come. Oh, okay. Well, let's, do you want to put a bit of trombone out? Yeah, go on then. What do you want me to play? Anything. You know, we had Davy Payne, the saxophonist from the Blockheads, nice. turn up. And um, we said, right, Dave. He said, well, what do you want me to do? Do you just want me to play sax parts or do you want me to do Dave? I thought, we wouldn't have you here unless you're going to do Davy Payne's stuff. So I think there's about five or six tracks on the album. He just stayed there all day. He was having fun. We said, just play what you want over this. So occasionally on the fire, <laughs> we went in to do the mix. Graham, the, the engineer, to mix it. He said, yeah, right, channel one, drums. Yep, there's your bass. There's your vocals. What's that? Oh, hang on, let's have a listen. Oh, that's a Tibetan thigh bone trumpet. Oh, okay. What's that? Oh, that's a sax solo. Oh, is that just in the middle? No, it's through the entire record. Oh, right. What's that? So you, if you listen to the record, you occasionally hear this, you know, verse ends and a chorus starts, and then you'll hear this mad sax from Davy Payne just blurting over for no reason at all, other than we said, yeah, you've got to put it in somewhere. And, you know, I, I kind of listened to a couple of tracks from it the other day and I was just smiling. I thought, actually, that's, yeah. I, I, <laughs> at the time, uh, it was because we were trying to do, we were trying to do what the record company didn't want us to do. But I think listening back to it, we got away with it. It's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And then following that, you you went in to do the second album, which has got the best title ever. I keep thinking it's Tuesday. It's <laughs> a fantastic yeah. album title. <laughs> I love that. Well, if you Google... I keep thinking it's Tuesday. You'll see where we got the title from. Okay, I'll do that as a challenge. Yeah. I'm going to say no more. <laughs> Interestingly, you say the word more. The first, that's more's the first track, isn't it, on the album? And I was listening to it yesterday. I thought it's very early Manchester before early Manchester. You've got like well, keyboards yeah. and guitars and you, like that sort of early Manchester Happy Mondays sound before the Happy Mondays. Well, it, it, it was, and we we recorded it for the album, and then they wanted it for the single, which we did. But then they said, oh, no, but you've got to re-record it for the single because it's got to be more, you know, technical. You know, uh, we just recorded it live-ish with live drums and everything. So we said, okay. So we had a real kind of trouble because nobody had really done that. As you say, it was a different sort of sound. Uh, and we kind of were kind of forging new territory. So we didn't know how live to make the drums feel. So we got our drummer Vaughn to program the drums and he programmed them exactly as he was playing them. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we kind of, yeah. And once we got that, I think everything else, um, and with that, as you say, the bass theme through it, um, kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it did. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we had fun doing that. And the video was even more fun <laughs> because yeah, we just got to, that was the one where we had a two day shoot because we made it as a trailer for a film, right. a fictitious film. Uh, which kind of explains the weirdness of the video. <laughs> we just, yeah, Brad Langford and I just brilliant. They gave us loads of money. Well, I say loads of money. I think it was about twenty five thousand pound. And uh, yeah, we just went off and filmed that for a couple of days and uh, had great fun doing it. Yeah, 
I mean, yeah, sorry, it's the first track on the B-side. That's where it was. It was the first track on the B-side. But Oh, you, you, you know more than me. <laughs> but the um, honestly, anyone that's listening to the podcast, if you find that track, I think that's on YouTube. I couldn't find it on Spotify and have a look. And you'll hear it's early Manchester. It is, Manchester. And, and it's on with the video on uh, YouTube as well. Yeah, and it is. It's early Manchester. It's early Happy Mondays. It's the early scene. I wonder if they were influenced by you by accident. I wonder if they heard that somewhere and it was kind of just soaked in as a, hang on, that would make a great genre. <laughs> well, the Stone well, the Stone Roses supported us in Croydon at, at the underground at that time. You Is that know. true? And would you have yeah. done that song live at that point? It would have been, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, you might want to look into that. You might be owed some money. <laughs> 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 oh, wouldn't people wouldn't people in Manchester hate that? I mean, uh, I'm a Liverpool. I was born in Liverpool, support Liverpool, and uh, so the, when you can imagine when Man United started singing "Spirit in the Sky," the fans, brilliant, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, if it actually came out, the doctor and the medics, Liverpool born Ned, influenced the entire um, Manchester. Yeah, that would be that would be hilarious, wouldn't it? <laughs> you should put that as a joke. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to put it in the show. It's, it's, I've just written it down. It's in my two-man show. <laughs> That'd be great. And um, on the end of the album as well, you put Burning Love on there, obviously made famous by Elvis. Did you want to put a cover back on or was that the record company insisting on putting one in? No, it wasn't on the original album. Oh, I wasn't? Okay. No, it wasn't on the original album. Uh, we put the album out. Uh, I think we had the singles from the album were more on Drive, he said. Um And this was recorded as a separate single because we got uh, America got in touch with us and said, we've got this um, film, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's a hilarious film. We've got this um, film, uh, Love at the Love at Stake, right. about the Salem witch trials. And the theme tune they want is Burning Love. So would Doctor and the Medics do it? And um, there was a check involved. So we said, yes. <laughs> Spike Milligan said, they say music is the food of love, but I played music for the love of food. Um <laughs> And I thought it'd be quite funny. And and again, it was mainly down to the video where Brad and I, it, it looks really expensive, but it was filmed in Nunhead Cemetery. Uh, and we got chased off by the police because we didn't have um, permission to film. Fantastic. Which is fair enough. But when you recognise that we were actually burning witches uh, in the cemetery, <laughs> um, I think they, 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 yeah, they kind of got, yeah. I mean, they hadn't had a witch burning in Nunhead for 300 years. So it was quite big news. <laughs> So we, um, yeah, so so we did that. And uh, yeah, the video looks good. Now, yeah, we just did that. And that was our last hurrah with IRS Records. I think it did, um, I think it did something in America, not a lot, but it was, you know, the film, but the you know, I think Love at Stake, Love at Stake, people, yeah, check it out. It's quite, it, it's not even a B movie. <laughs> Is, was there anything you wanted to cover, but the record company said no, like you wanted to cover and release and they said, no, we're not doing that one. Um, no, not really, no, because I, I think the, um, we should have said no to IO Silver Lining, but again, I play music for the love of food. Um, but I, no, I, I can't think of any, no, we've always, I, th- I think record companies, if you say you want to do a cover, they, they'll always say, oh, that's good then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no, no, very few. If you could be sort of remember for one of the songs you've actually written yourself, which one would you pick? If I if I had to say this is the song, I might not have written it yet. Oh, I like that. <laughs> That's great. You should have that as the title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's a there are. I know I keep harping on about it, but there's a couple of them on this album that I, that you know I love. Uh, the wrong way out, which we're thinking of putting out as a single, um, is is coming on really good. Yeah, but of um, my songs, going back to then 
Uh, we still play, uh, there's a couple that we play live occasionally, which is No One Loves You When You Got No Shoes. <laughs> uh, and I kind of say about that, sadly, that I wrote it in the 80s about all the kind of freaks and the misfits and people who just didn't feel part of what was going on. And I think, sadly, it's more relevant now than it was then. That's true. Uh, yeah. So I'm quite proud of that one. And I think I, Mole Catcher. Oh, fantastic. Which yeah. Is still, yeah, which just because it's such a good song. And it's the only song to juxtapose imagery between the first case of elephantitis in the British Isles in 1743 in Hawkshead in the Lake District and the now very unfashionable climate change phenomenon of acid rain. <laughs> It's ahead of your time again. <laughs> yeah, I think for that alone, it needs to be remembered. So, um, yeah, so there we are. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and I, and I think actually the track off the Instant Heaven album, there's a couple on there, but I do like Instant Heaven as well. Fantastic. So where's, where can they get the radio show if you want to get the radio show? Uh, right, well, I um, DJ on 365 Radio. You can find it easily, 365radio.co. I do my Thursday show, which is the Doctor's Thursday Surgery, from 10 till 12. And I do the Sunday show, which is the Legacy Chartbreaker show, which has been brilliant for me because it's all uh, acts who have been around for 20 years or more. And it's anything they put out. So, of course, you know, I've just, you know, ending out by Arthur Brown or the damned, that's straight up there for me. But I also have to play a cross-section. So it's kind of opened my mind a little bit. But um, we've just started a, a Patreon thing. So that if you subscribe to me on the radio station, you get all my shows plus exclusive content. So I'm just putting a video up there at the moment for a song called Magic Colours, which was a Leslie Gore song, which I recorded for a publisher friend of mine who sadly died um, just after. So it was kind of done as a demo. But it's 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 nice. I've put together a little video of stills for that. So we're putting stuff up like that so people can get only access to my stuff on there. And it's, yeah. It's a uh, it's 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 a great little radio station because you can no adverts and um, no playlists and you get to do exactly what you want and I do one part of the show which goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning which is the doctor's mixed bag in my swollen sack of balls I pick out some of the tracks that radio stations don't play and that some say should never play and so I play some of the original trash stuff that kind of got me intrigued into music and I have played Mule Skinner Blues on there by many times. Yes. Fantastic. Um, I mean, you're one of the hardest working bands around as well. Are you touring again soon as well? We, we, we're never not touring. Uh, we've, um, but sadly, we've had a very busy summer, which has been brilliant because 2020, believe it or not, was going to be our busiest year for 35 years. Wow. Um, and then, of course, as we say in the band, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, but we're kind of, we got to about 60% of that this year. And next year is looking, in fact, just before I came on to you, I just had an email for another, so the festival season's looking really good next year. Um, but unfortunately, the non-summer circuit is dying on its backside. Oh, really? Uh, venues are closing. Uh, and, of course, this, country, this government doesn't give a hoot. Yeah. about the music industry the live music industry and they underestimate at their peril because you know it break gets people out it gets people mixing but the cost you know you look at what you'd have to charge for tickets at some venues now and people just have not got the money mm. and it has got you know and so, so the venues that are going and what i say two things brilliant Please keep flying the flag. Please keep going. But to everybody uh, who maybe hasn't been to a gig for a few years and keeps saying, oh, I'll go to a gig. Okay, it's not cheap. But then, you know, sitting at home, 
yeah, fine. You can't do that for the rest of your life. Get out and just go to a gig and support the live industry and you will have a great time. It will enrich your life. Yeah, uh, That happiness will filter into everything you do is so important. But uh, the thing is, if you don't go and in a year's time, you think, oh, well, let's go to that venue. You go and oh, look, there's all boards over the windows. So th- those venues that are going need people's support. So... Yeah, the scene is out there. The music scene is still out there. It's just nobody. You're right. Nobody wants to go and see it. It's crazy. <laughs> no, it, it. You know, there's little pockets of it. You get pockets of it, and you get some excellent venues uh, that kind of run of you know and do it. And it's those venues. And do you know what? Even if you're seeing a, a, a band in a pub and it's free admission, you're going in there and you're buying a drinks. And you're supporting the vet, that pub that's putting those bands on, and that pub is paying those bands, so it kind of filters through. It does. It doesn't matter what level you go to. Unfortunately, you know, you talk to a lot of people, and you say, "Have you been to any gigs?" Yeah, well, I went to see uh, Black Sabbath's last gig. We're going to go and see, uh, you know, all the, oh, the Enormo domes, you know, yeah. and that's what they think the gig experience is, and that they're prepared to go and spend like a hundred quid on a ticket plus, you know, a hotel. You know, oh, it cost us 500 quid with hotels. Yeah, they're prepared <laughs> to do that. But if they see a band down the road in a venue where they have to pay 20 quid, oh no, 20 quid. <laughs> you know, well, you might be seeing the next Stone Roses. You might be seeing the next Who. You know, you might be seeing the next Doctor and the Medics, God help you. But, you know, <laughs> go and see, you know. And and and, and also, you, you get a lot of kind of, I suppose, legacy artists, you know, back playing that circuit as well. You'd be surprised the people that are touring in this country. Yeah. Um, who, you know, you can go and see, just lift your head out the trenches, folks. You know, <laughs> it's it's not that dangerous. Lift your head out, have a look around and see what's going on. Because it is still very vibrant and exciting, but it doesn't need people to get behind it. Fantastic. So you are saying at the start that you're doing a sort of autobiography tour at the moment, as it were. Is there plans to turn that into a book or a podcast about your life? And No, in fact, quite the opposite. Oh, okay. Because... Andrew King was our manager from kind of very early on through to the spirit quite a bit after. And I said to him one time, I said, Andrew, if I wrote a book about my life, nobody would believe it. And he said, dear boy, if you wrote a book about your life, nobody would buy it. <laughs> Not true. And he's got a point. So I, so during lockdown, I thought, well, let's write, why don't I write a book? And I thought, remember that? I thought, no, let's write a show. Let's do a show. Put it on there. So of course it changes every time I do it. Um, and I like to see if there's people in the audience, there's a bit of interaction sometimes because people shout. I don't have a question and answer, um, <laughs> but occasionally people come up and say, oh, you've left out so-and-so. And, you know, you think, well, yeah, do you know what? <laughs> it, you've got to get the mix right. It's a funny show. It's a very funny show because you've got to get the mix right between actual facts and figures and where you were at the time. Because someone said, oh, I thought we would be, we'd hear about, uh, you know, the producer on the second album. And it's like... Yeah, if you did that to him, people would just be like, oh, God, first off, is he going to go? Because the guy came, we went in the studio in 1985. Uh, the producer was, we used a, a t- two-inch tape, Scotch uh, tape, on a 24-track, uh, listed digitally. To, you, know, you know, and that's what I want to avoid. So, it, But on the other hand, you do want to tell a bit of the story in amongst all the nonsense that went on. And it's, yeah, so you kind of pick and choose and do bits and yeah and i really enjoy it. I, at first i hated it because mm. trying to time it learn it and i was thinking do i actually learn the script or do i just talk and i've, I've kind of worked out now there's it's where i am with it so i'm quite comfortable with it now so you go on and you kind of talk with a bit you know you've got the script but you kind of look oh that but yeah i'll just talk about that for a bit and then something will come in your head that you've totally forgotten about 
you know, talking yeah. to you now, I'd, I'd actually forgotten about, you know, a couple of things we mentioned so before. So, uh, oh, wonderful. Coming to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Well, you know, you get to a certain age, it starts, the brain starts to slowly <laughs> empty. So if people want tickets for that, um, where's the best place to find out about what Doctor and the Medics is up to now and in the future? Okay, well, doctorandthemedics.com uh, is the website. Um, it's, isn't it great that, you know, we always used to say years ago, www.all lowercase, just doctorandthemedics.com. <laughs> um, and you'll find it there. Um, my Facebook page, and we've got a Doctor and the Medics Facebook page, and there is also um, Spirits Medics Tour Diary. Right. Bizarre as that seems, which is run by um, Julie for us, and she she probably has more on there than I put on mine. So yeah, yeah, just I'm not that hard to find, you know. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, it's quite quite easy to find us. But uh, for gigs, if you go onto the website and go to the gig list, and there's a little thing there. So the only doctor we'll see in our show that's in at the moment, the last one of the year is of the 8th of December at the Pheasantry. And so uh, that'll be our last performance of that. In fact, I think that's our last gig for the year. Oh, fantastic. Um, Clive, it's been lovely talking to you today. Thanks for giving me some time. It's been brilliant. No, thank you. And uh, everybody, stay real, look after yourselves and look after each other. This show is produced, edited and presented by Robbie. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. 